Fellowship family, it's great to have you with us. I'm going to invite you to turn with me to the book of 1 Corinthians. That's where we're going to be for the next several weeks. If you have a journal, which we hope you do, but if you don't, you can pick one up in the information center. And that journal kind of takes you through in your time with the Lord each day what I'm preaching over over the course of a weekend. And you can prepare for that by spending time with the Lord and reading through that Hey, the Bible is about real places and with real people and with real promises from God. And Corinth was a place in which God was working in that first century. Here's a uh, picture of where or a map of where Corinth is. It's right down on the lower portion there, right in present day Greece. And it was a strategic place to do business, to have a port. As you can see, they came in through... Um, from the Western Mediterranean, and they moved goods across that short strip of land called an isthmus. Do you like that word? Use it for Scrabble someday. But it uh, it moved it right into the agency and kept those ships from sailing the treacherous waters of southern Greece. It was a major transportation route. Paul came here in the literal 50s, not talking about 1950s, the literal 50s, on his second missionary journey. Present day, uh, this is a Google Earth shot, it has a canal through there, and they moved that in the late 1800s, they built that canal. But if you can see how much time and how much uh, land that saved them from transporting goods. Uh, Rome rebuilt the city, Paul traveled there, Acts 18 kind of details his experience there. He went there from Athens, and he was a tent maker. And he met up with other tent makers, a husband and wife team named Aquila and Priscilla. And he went to the synagogue. And it was at the synagogue where he preached the gospel. Why did he go to the synagogue? Because the Jews had the law and the prophets. And that's the foundation in which the gospel was preached. But a God who was active, who created all things, a God who worked through people and called them to himself, a people who rebelled against him, and a God who wanted them to return in the person and the work of Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah. And he called them. The problem was in Corinth is they rejected him. And he literally got to a point where he took off his cloak and he shook it off and shook off the dust of his cloak to say, good riddance of you, I'm leaving. But God appeared to him in a vision. And he said, Paul, do not be afraid. Go on speaking, for I am with you. No one will attack you. No one will harm you. There are many in the city who need to hear this and who are open to this message. And so he moved out of the synagogue and moved right next door to the synagogue and a guy named Justice in his home. And if Paul were here today, he would have right outside that synagogue put up a neon sign that said, Jesus saves. And many people came to Christ. It was a large church. And he spent in the next 18 months or a year and a half preaching and planting the church and pastoring the church he had founded. The people in Corinth were a prosperous people. They moved the goods. They were entrepreneurial in in nature. They were individualistic, self-made, self-ruled, in control of their lives and of their futures. They took great pride in that. They were pleasure seekers. And the seeking for pleasure just was a monster in their lives. Threw them into sexual immorality. It threw them into debauchery, into drunkenness. 
It threw them into just a life out of control. As you can see, Corinth has nothing to do with present American culture. We're much too, you know, intelligent and developed and godly. No, no. Corinth is us. And this is a message to us as it was to Corinth. I love what the Bible commentary uh, written by David Pryor on this book called The Bible Speaks Today says about the church in Corinth. There were cliques. There were different factions in the church. They were snobbish. The rich in the church turned up their nose to the poor. They were lax on discipline. They had low morals, low doctrine. They refused to submit to authority, even questioning Paul's apostleship. They had a lack of love and an either greater lack of humility. They had no problem taking each other to, to the court over disagreements. And they celebrated their personal freedoms without any conscience. They were infatuated with the dramatic gifts of the Spirit, but they also discredited the other gifts that God had given them to exercise in the church. They were short on love, long on truth. And as a result, the church was fractured. There was disagreement, divisions, and dissension. And so Paul writes this letter from Ephesus after he had left it. And he, he, he was concerned about them, and he wanted to correct them, and he wanted them call back to call, be called back. And that's the name of the church in Greek. It's ekklesia. Ek meaning out and kaleo meaning called. We are the called out ones. He wanted to call them out of their culture and into a community of Christ followers. And what he's going to say in this passage is that God's church is greater than any one of us, but it engages every one of us. So with that in mind, let's read the passage. It's going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning with verse 10. It says this. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind with the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, by my brothers, What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanas. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross be emptied of its power. Before I get into the text, let me just tell you one thing that's very evident in this passage, is that God is committed to building his foundation of his church on Jesus Christ. It's the whole purpose of the church. We're built on Christ. And nothing brings this out more than just our recent experience and our current experience in building. We're building an expansion to our church right now. And uh, we spent months in the dirt and looking for good soil to build. And we did core drilling initially about a year and a half ago. And we dug down and we found some soil that we could build on, some ground that we could build on. But a problem was what you see on the bottom of this picture 
That is determined by the Corps of Engineers that that is a navigable river. There's no water in it. And it only fills up when it rains really hard because the land around it drains into that area. And over the course of several years since the land was plotted, that that non-navigable river was eating into the hill in which our church is being built upon. And it actually moved that river 14 feet closer to the building from the time we originally had it plotted. Interesting. So we called the government. They are our great helper, right? Unfortunately, we learned we had six major government groups to have to satisfy to keep building. And so it was a miraculous thing with our, uh, with our architect as well as our contractor. And we worked with uh, local, state, and federal authorities to get approval over 45 days, which is a miracle for everyone to agree, to build this. We built a wall. And it's 300 feet long. Um, we thought if China did it, so can we. <laughs> and it has 900 cubic yards of concrete. If you see a cement truck going by, that's 10 yards. That means 90 trucks poured concrete in here. At one point on the lower portion of that wall, it's 12 feet deep. This is a 100-year solution because we're committed to building on solid ground. It's costly, it's timely, it's messy, but if the ground isn't good that you're building on, the church crumbles. And it just shows us that whether it's a church or whether it's individuals, we all have to be grounded in the person and the work and the authority of Jesus in our lives. I think it's interesting. God is passionately committed to you and your life being founded and grounded in Christ. And some of us find out a little bit about Jesus and we go, nope, okay, I mean, I like the good things about Jesus, but me change? Forget it. He needs to change for me. And so we walk away when we realize he has to go deeper in our lives. Others of us let him start, but it gets uncomfortable. And it's whether life kind of undercuts through suffering and pain and we just stop letting him work. And so we have, we have holes that are drilled, but nothing in them. And then there's others of us who have learned to trust Jesus as he's dug deep in our lives and, and hit solid ground for us to where we're open, to where we trust him, to where we're humble. And, and we remove our arrogance and allow him to lead us in our lives. You see, 1 Corinthians is an invitation for our church to be grounded in Christ. And throughout this book, you're going to be offered two choices. Are you going to be someone who's divided on shifting ground or united on common ground? Because there's two churches built on two different types of ground. And the church at Corinth was on shifting ground. And Paul had to take the painful work of saying, no, 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 let's correct this. Let's grow deeper than personalities or, or things that divide us. And let's be united. Let's be united on the common ground of the person, the work, and the authority of Jesus. Before we move on to what it looks like to be united, let me talk to you about what they were divided about. Because it's shown in this passage. First thing they were divided about was uh, leadership personalities. 
And look at that in verse 12. It says, what I mean that, and he kind of unpacks it, kind of dissects the problem. And he says, so each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Let's go through those. Paul was the church planter. He was the visionary. He was the pioneer. He went from the known to the unknown. He came there. He labored over the gospel. He formed relationships. He called them to grace. And there are some people, now that he was no longer there, who would go, man, it was so much better when Paul was here. That is so awesome. I mean, when Paul was here, people were getting along. When Paul was here, we would have known what to do, but now he's not. So, man, nothing was better. This church is gone without Paul. And then there were others who were with Apollos. Apollos was a Greek and he was articulate. He was intelligent. He was a great expositor of the Bible. He was off on a few areas, but most of all, people loved him and he was leading. And they were going, we unite with Apollos. We like him. And then there was others, one named Cephas. And who is Cephas? Well, that's the Aramaic name of Peter. And they went back to the Aramaic, which they didn't speak in their culture there. They just kind of did an arrogant, well, we believe that someone connected with the life and the ministry and the land of Jesus ought to lead us. And so Peter, we're not even told Peter visited Corinth, but he had some sway with the Jewish believers in Corinth. And then there were those who just looked really spiritual when they said this. They said, I follow Christ. And what they were really saying by that was not that they were following Christ, but rather they rejected the authority of anyone over them. They didn't want the leadership in the church to tell them what to do. They certainly even questioned Paul's apostleship in the process. And they go, no, 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 it's just about, and they love that little bracelet. What would Jesus do? I mean, they would throw that up. It was in leather in those days. (laughs) But they disconnected from authority and in arrogance said, I'll only follow Jesus. See, leadership personalities, God does use personalities, but he does not found his church on anyone except Jesus. And, you know, it's really tempting to follow someone, but there is a great cost in the personality driven church. Because it's rare that another personality, when someone is, is worshipped rather than Jesus, when someone is respected rather than the word, look out. That's the, that's the start of cancer in a church. And so it's important for a church to balance the gift of a leader and an individual with the value of many ministry gifts. And that's why we emphasize this, that everyone in this room is a minister. If you know Jesus, you're a minister. And every place that you serve, whether inside or outside of the church, is a ministry. We're all called to this. It's not one person. It's Jesus that we celebrate. And it's not my work. It's his work in us. You want to hurt me? Tell me fellowship's all about me. I love what you're doing, Joe. Boy, the church has grown under your leadership. My goodness, what would we do without you? You would survive. You would survive. Because I honestly believe it's not built around me here. Our leadership isn't built around me. I play a role here. I'm honored to play a role. But it's not about me. Joe, I love it when you preach. Oh, I tell you, I feel like you're preaching to me. I don't like it when that person preaches. Man, I just, I better know because I'm not going to show up. You want to hurt me? 
say that. You're not complimenting me. You're tearing someone down to compliment me. What would you say about me when I'm not around? Folks, it's not a compliment. Now, we'll continue on this later, but realize it cannot be about me. It can't even be about you. It's got to be about Jesus. Secondly, they were divided about traditional loyalties. And here, by this, I mean who they followed. Look at that. I follow Paul. I follow Paulus. I follow Cephas. I follow Christ. Now, Paul uh, was a Jew, but he moved from Corinth. It, we realized, I'm also an apostle to the Gentiles. And that Gentile community loved that, that, that the law, he moved from the law to grace with them. Apollos was an ethnic Jew, I, I mean, an ethnic Greek. And so most of Corinth was of the Greek people and the Greek background. And so they loved, they loved a leader who was from them and could speak for them. They liked the traditions that he was calling them to. Peter, he was a link to the homeland, the homeland of Jesus and the homeland of the Jews. And Christ, he had no connection with other, with, with the, the people who wanted Christ wanted no connection with people. And each of them had their own traditions. At no time do you see Paul writing, saying, my tradition is the best and, and this is why I'm here and it's much better than Apollos. It wasn't competitive. But there are traditions in a church, right? We all know the traditions that are in churches. And sometimes traditions are held to more than Christ. That we would rather change the gospel than change our church. And Paul is saying, no, the gospel's got to win. And there are some things as a church uh, goes through times where things have to be changed. Why? Because you want to keep the gospel the major thing. And, and that's kind of refreshing from time to time is that there's things in our ministries. There's things that need to be changed so that we can keep and clarify the gospel. We've got to be open with those things. And the balance of health in a church is that some things will have to change in order to emphasize the things that can never change. I've heard growing up in the Baptist church, I've heard, well, if it was good enough for Jesus, it's good enough for me. And in other words, this church is not headed in, in the perception of Jesus that I have. We've got to be humble with that. We've got to keep Jesus at the center. And then they were also divided on speaking abilities. Paul was a passionate communicator, but yet his grammar was a little out of whack. I mean, even reading his... His uh, letters, if you're an English teacher, you're going, my goodness, what a run on sentence. <laughs> and that's what people who were intelligent and articulate would do with Paul. They would go, oh, boy, man, the guy can't. He's not a trained order. Look at him. He mispronounced that. And Apollos came in. And my goodness, the guy was articulate. And he was right on with the Greek oratory school from Alexandria, Egypt. He was schooled in that. He was a guy who could really bring it. And, and everyone would go, I like how Apollos preaches. Paul is just a little rough. But if you were someone who was inspired by a preacher, who could be passionate about something and were, could overlook a few grammatical errors, Paul was the guy who could ignite you. He planted the church there. Cephas, we aren't even told he went to, to Corinth, but yet he was one of the first preachers of the gospel. Maybe he preached to them from Jerusalem and he had a word for them. 
those who are wrapped up in Christ. Maybe it was only the words of Jesus that brought them authority. The problem is, as Paul says, that the gospel is the power of salvation for all who believe. The power is not in the power of the preacher, but is in the power of God. And it's not in a powerful man. It's in the powerful person and work of Jesus. That's why when we hear when someone comes to Christ, that their eyes were open and their heart was willing. That's a power in which no human can do. That's the power of the Holy Spirit working in. Now, some are going to be better with speaking abilities. But I like what Paul says. Look at verse 17. He says, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. See, the content of the gospel is Jesus lived a life for you. You couldn't live. Jesus died on a cross to pay a price you couldn't pay. Jesus rose from the dead to secure the power of sin, power over sin and death in your life. That's the cross. Keep it simple. Don't overcomplicate it. You can be creative, but don't lose it. Don't lose it. Don't rob the power of the cross in your preaching. And with all these different personalities, there were groups that liked one versus the other. You know what? We can do this as a church. Either when you give me a compliment at the expense of another pastor or even someone leading worship. Like, oh, I love it when you lead. I feel so worshipful. But when that person leads, look out. Some of us are going to lead differently. And we have a whole bunch of different personalities and a lot of different wirings in this church. Sometimes I'm going to interact with you better than someone else. But don't rob yourself of learning in the process. Don't. God wants to develop all of us so that we can learn in every environment and other people can teach us. It's not just on one person. And we're committed, especially in the future, of having more communicators up on this place so that you can learn from someone than just me. That's a good thing to do. I've learned that in my small group. There were guys in my small group who never opened their Bible. And then all of a sudden, the process of us just sharing the teaching time And I'm sure I was intimidating to the process. I'm sure having the lead pastor in your small group kind of looking at you like this, it made you feel like, yeah, I don't know what what this passage means, but you know what? I always got something. Because God has something for all of us when we open up his word and we study it. It shouldn't be around when there's the perfect condition of the right person in the right environment and the right words to me. No, it's got to be just an openness and a teachability in us. So let love guide you. Don't rob yourself. Be careful in your judgment. Don't let arrogance, self-righteousness, a critical spirit cause you to poison your own attitude and the attitude of people around you. You can learn, I can learn in pretty much any environment by anyone who opens up the scriptures and teaches. Don't be divided over speaking abilities. And finally, don't be divided over doctrinal emphases. I think what is interesting, if you were to take Paul and just kind of dissect what he was all about, every time Paul spoke, you're going to find the doctrinal emphasis of one word. 
grace, God's undeserved love, Jesus being the righteousness and the mercy from God. Wherever he talks, he talks about grace. That was his emphasis. Apollos probably had a more of a systematic faith that, that preached with a systematic on, on knowledge and truth about God. Peter had a respectful mix of the law and grace. Jesus simply said, follow me. But every preacher has a, has a doctrinal emphasis and every church can be have an emphasis. But be careful that the emphasis doesn't crowd out the person and the work and the authority of Jesus. I grew up in a Baptist church. I went to an evangelical free church because at the time they were allowed to go to movies. And I wanted to see King Kong when it came out. I also went to a Lutheran middle school and a Lutheran high school. I went to a Bible church. I went to a Presbyterian church and actually led in a Presbyterian church for eight and a half years. And now I'm in a non-denominational church. How could I do this? Because every one of those churches that I got to go to focused on Jesus more than we are Presbyterians, unite Presbyterians. They weren't like that. And if they were, I wouldn't have hung around. Because they were focusing on doctrinal emphases that were contrary or clouding of the gospel of Jesus. Some of you may have come from churches like that. But the church is called, no matter what the denomination, to lift up Jesus Christ. I love what Paul says here. He says, I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may... may think that you were, or say that you were baptized in my name. See, his emphasis was not on him doing the work. It wasn't, and you're going to see him just highlighting and making different emphasis and correcting an overemphasis in different doctrinal areas here. And so what he hears from a woman named Chloe in Ephesus, we're not even told if she was a believer, We're not even told if she was a believer, and that would even be worse, wouldn't it? But what do we find? Hey, the church back in Corinth, the one that you, the one that you started, there's disagreement, there's divisions, there's dissensions. Man, I hate it when the church is like that. I remember going to churches that had divisions and disagreements and dissensions. And I continued going out of a sense of obedience to what God was doing there, even though I didn't see him working in people. It's tough to go to those types of churches. But we're still called to it. Because the body of Christ is a broken body. But it's called to health. It's called to be restored. It's called to be regrounded in the person and the work of Christ. And what Paul does is he asks three questions. He has three questions uh, that have a rhetorical no. But with that, he teaches what would the church ought to say yes to. And the first one is this. The church is called to be united around the person of Christ. Look at that first question in verse 13. He says, is Christ divided? Answer. Hello. Answer. No, no, Christ isn't divided. You can't take Jesus and say, I like this about you, but I don't like this about you. I want this, and I want to emphasize this about you, but I want to de-emphasize this. We take all of Jesus, and we don't need a person 
In that we don't need another opinion. We have Jesus. And when you've trusted in Jesus, you don't need a person or anything to complete that relationship. So Jesus isn't divided. So anything that Jesus is over or leading shouldn't be divided. Come together, church. He's not divided. You shouldn't be divided. We already have all of him. So we do well to glorify and magnify the person of Jesus as a church. Here Paul says, be in agreement or say the same thing about Jesus. Our world doesn't. Our world is fractured and divided on Jesus. You want to get things going? Talk about God, but then you want to really divide things? Talk about Jesus. Whoa, freak. Whoa, man, don't, don't go there. Talk about God because he's not personal when you talk to him. Talk about Jesus. He's the person who lived, who died, who rose again for me. Yeah, he's divided out in our world. The church is called to say the same thing about Jesus. He's far more than a moral man. He's perfect. He's the son of God. He's the Messiah. He's the savior. We say the same thing. When we celebrate communion, we say the same thing. That's why if you don't believe in Jesus and are not trusting him, don't take communion. Don't do why. It's just a, a meaningless ritual to you. But this means that we're united around the person and the work of Jesus. So take it if you believe it. And then the second area that we're called to be united around is united around the work of Christ. Look at the second one. Second question he asks is, was Paul crucified for you? Answer? No, he wasn't. I mean, it wasn't Paul who united them back to God. It was Christ who united them back to God. Paul's, the, the, the whole picture was Christ and the cross bearing your shame, bearing your guilt, bearing the wrath of God for us. That's the whole picture. It's, it's what Christ has done. And it is Paul who says, drop your infatuation with the cliques and the personalities and fix your eyes on Jesus and on Jesus crucified. They owed Jesus uh, their lives. And it was Jesus who united them to God. It was Jesus who united them to each other. It was Jesus who united them even to themselves. And it's Jesus who will keep us united. When we celebrate communion, we celebrate that it's all the work of Jesus. Someone came to me once and said, Joe, I don't feel like taking communion. I said, are you a believer? They said, yes. I said, take it. Why? I don't feel, who cares what you feel? Are you united to Christ through the work of of what Christ has done for you? Yes, maybe this might just be an interactive experience for you to get back in touch with who has united you back to God. It's not your feelings. It's not your works. Oh, but Joe, I'm, I'm not getting along with my wife right now, and I'm telling her I'm not taking communion because we fought on the way to church. <laughs> Nudge her, say, I'm sorry, and take communion. Okay? Yeah, don't let that disunite. Don't let that divided attitude. Confess that. You might just see how Jesus accepts you. You might just see how Jesus loved you when you were not loving to him. Yeah, communion calls you into that. It's not a mystical experience that there's magical powers in these things. They are representations of the work of Christ. And we kind of rehearse his work in our lives and we take it. Unite church around the work of Christ. 
And then finally, unite around the authority of Christ. Look at this third question. It says, or were you baptized in the name of Paul? And the answer is, no, you were baptized in the name of Jesus, or more specifically, in the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. The triune, one God is whom you're baptized in. And, and if you look at what you do when you, you're baptized is you pair yourself with Christ. You unite with Christ and you follow him. You sign your life over to someone and you come under his authority, his leading. You come under his lordship and you follow him. Paul baptized only a few and he downplays the significance of him baptizing. And if you're holding off baptism because you want another person to do that for you in a different place or with other people around, then don't, I mean, just obey. It's not about you. It's not about the person who baptizes you. It's about Jesus who's united you back to God. Find Jesus. And when you find him, follow Jesus. Never make your life about someone or something else. And never leave him. Never stray. Even inside the church, protect truth. But live in love. Unite around the person, the work, and the authority of Christ. And when you do, when you or this church unites around the person, the work, and the authority of Jesus, what do we get? We get acceptance, we get agreement, and we get alignment. Everything Paul calls us to do in verse 10. People are loved because they're loved and accepted the way Christ has accepted you. People, uh, people who are, are agree about the person and the work and the lordship of Jesus in their lives, it's amazing how they can keep that at the front and center of everything that happens in that church. People who are aligned to the purpose of Christ have that one mind and one judgment that's called for from Paul. A united or a divided church. What kind of church do you want to be? What kind of person do you want to be? See, the most, person, most difficult person that, that I've had to lead in the local church is not someone who doesn't believe It's not someone who rebels against authority. It's not someone who's even critical or cynical or complacent in a church. The most difficult person I've had to lead in my 25 years of ministry is me. That's me because I know the thoughts. I know the judgments I've made on others. I've known how I felt about people who disagree with me. I have loyalties to different traditions. I have sometimes habits and hurts and hang-ups in my life that I'm trying to get over. And if someone's pressing in on that with the word, I get offended. I deal with that. And you know what? The most powerful person I can lead in this church is me. And the most powerful person you can lead is you. Because more than anyone in this room, you can lead your life to being united around Christ. More than you can for anyone else in this room, you can be united united with God and his people called the church. Or you could be divided. We choose each day to either be divided or united. Divided around a person or a style or a preference or a philosophy of ministry or a doctrinal emphasis or tradition. Or you can choose to set aside all those things to make your church and your life 
about the person and the work and the authority of Jesus. Now, we're all going to be imperfect in doing that, but we're all called to follow someone who is perfect. And that person is Jesus. So, unite. Unite to God and his people through the person, the work, and the authority of Jesus. What could that look like for you? Well, some, it might mean, hey, I'm going to hang around and I'm going to make this place a priority for me. I'm going to show up more than once a month and I'm going to engage that, that this, is, this is God's church and I'm in. I'm all in. Others are going to stop watching ministry happen around them and they're going to start engaging it. You're going to get into a small group so you're known and not just unknown and and unclear about your connection to a church. Others of you are going to serve in ministry. You're going to join our staff and, and serve here and advance the kingdom of God with us. Some of you are going to move out of complacency and giving and you're going to give to advance the kingdom of God in your generation. And you're going to move out of complacency and you're going to make your life about more than yourself and all about Jesus and his work in your life and his authority in your life. And in your generation, you're going to make his name greater through this thing called the church, God's church, the bride of Christ. Unite to him, to each other and his church. Because his church is greater than any one of us, but engages every one of us. Be part of what God's doing. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this call of, of moving away from our differences to unite around the person and the work and the authority of Jesus. I'm just going to pray this in faith right now because I know that you're working in the lives of people in this room. But Lord, you can count on us to be united around the person and the work and the authority of Jesus in this place and outside in our community. May people who, who see our connection in the community or even our lives in our neighborhood know that there's a difference and it's all about you. And now as we celebrate communion... I pray that we would say the same thing and that you would be glorified and you'd be honored as we proclaim who you are and what you've done in our lives. It's in the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.